This is Saluna's uh, podcast. We uh, have a couple formats that we do. We do roundtable discussions about current events. Um, we've done introductions to the team, business plans, and we've talked about our business model and executional models. Um, and then, of course, we also like to interview um, experts in fields that we touch um, and build thought leadership. Um, in this case, today, we will be interviewing Andrew. Uh, Andrew is a member of the Fieldstone Group based out of the UK, and they are focused on renewable energy development in Africa and other parts of the world. Um, and we uh, have partnered with them for our capital raising activities here at Saluna. Um, with that short intro, Andrew, do you want to introduce uh, maybe the firm, first of all, uh, beyond what I said? Um, any color you want to add? Well, I think we've been uh, doing stuff in, in Africa now for you know, almost 25 years. Um, so we started a, a long time ago before it was uh, uh, before renewables were really the thing, and, and before um, Africa became, you know, kind of a, a real sort of uh, int frontier market of, of, of interest. Um, you know, the origins of the firm have always been very much in energy uh, and infrastructure. Um, and you know, a few years back, you know, we took a, a, a view that the area which interested us, or most of us, most, um, was the emerging markets and, and, and Africa in particular. Uh, we do other stuff in, in Europe as well, but I suppose the the, the, uh, the emotional heart of the firm is in what we've been doing in the continent. You've been with the firm for all 22 years of its life? No, uh, although actually uh, the very first deal I ever did as an investment banker when I was uh, allowed out by myself uh, was actually a joint <laughs> venture uh, between the firm I then worked with um, and Fieldstone uh, when we were advising some, some okay. uh, same, same clients. Um, so I have actually known Fieldstone right from its uh, inception, uh, and I sort of re joined Fieldstone um, properly uh, back in 2001, and uh, right. now I'm one right. of the, you know, the, the main shareholders in the business as well. Great. Um, in terms of your background, you know, uh, psychologists ask you always, what's your first memory as a child? What, what was your first memory? in terms of either capital raising or working in uh, Africa or, or just business generally? Give us, a, give us a start and, and tell us how you got to where you are today. Well, um, my first memory of uh, working in financial services uh, actually goes back to uh, Japan um, and the late 80s and the uh, bubble era. Um, and I suppose that uh, since that time, um, there have been many, many uh, financial bubbles and you kind of get a, a, a smell for them. I was uh, in Asia again in uh, uh, 97 and then uh, you, know, you, see, you see these, these sort of bubble situations. So um, I guess my first memory uh, was kind of what it feels like to be in a bubble. Yeah. And what were you doing? How, well, first of all, how did you get to Japan? And then what were you doing there? Well, I was hired to go there by somebody who, who helped me said, I thought you would you, you, do well in uh, investment banking. And so I kind of uh, uh, just went off to Japan, not knowing anything about uh, Japan or investment banking and kind of just got, <laughs> got started on it. Um, yeah. So uh, that was the origins. 
And how many years did you spend in Japan? I was there for three, there for three years, and then I then came back uh, to the UK and got thrown into the whole of the electricity privatization. So my involvement with yes. um, uh, energy and power uh, goes back to the early 90s uh, when the uh, firm I was with, it was called Kleinwalt Benson, um, Natalie then became president uh, of Kleinwalt Wasserston, um, was um, doing a huge amount of prioritization work. And the, the power industry was the one that they were leading on. And that led us on to doing a lot of work for other governments around Europe, in Portugal and Italy, um, as part of that big sort of thrust towards prioritization. So that's a very interesting. So your first experience in power had a lot to do with, I guess, uh, changes in the regulatory landscape and governments asking themselves, how are we going to power these nations? How are we going to uh, induce economic growth? How has that affected your experience working in Africa and what what what, ex what what sort of tools in the toolkit has that given you? Well, I think it's, a, it's a, actually a very interesting question um, because where it starts from um, was in the UK, the uh, creation of a market, uh, right. a market for power, but previously this no one had conceived of. Um, and, and that probably more than the change of ownership um, was the fundamental change that was taking place uh, in the UK at that time. And in some ways, you could say, well, you know, as far as Africa is concerned, um, that has uh, you know, not really uh, been a feature of the market. You know, the traditional market in, in Africa has been, you know, big uh, projects, long-term uh, PPAs, uh, and a kind of a rather sort of static um, approach. Um, but I think that we are seeing some really interesting changes um, in this area. Um, a market I'm very familiar with is Nigeria. Um, and there, you know, the power system, uh, you know, has serious, serious challenges. Um, and one of the tools that now people are starting to, uh, you know, use there is uh, direct sales um, from uh, to eligible customers uh, using the power network, um, and that's the sort of the first stage of moving toward towards a market for power. Um, if you look in uh, South Africa uh, or Southern Africa, I should say, and the and the South African power pool, you, know, you see then you know we have clients who are uh, looking now to find ways to trade their power, you know, and, and to um, ameliorate positions that they have with um, uh, utility off-takers to try to find ways in which they can get direct access to customers um, you know, where utilities, major utilities are having trouble uh, paying their bills. Um, and as, you know, where we're working in, in, in Morocco, some similar things are, are happening there as well. So I think that this um, you know, but, but, but transition towards a uh, where you're not just selling to a utility, you're selling direct to your customer, or creating your own customers, becoming a more and more important part of the landscape. You just talked about an important lever, which is uh, driving investment in Africa, which is changes in the regulatory landscape. But can you give us a sense for if we go, you know, however you want to break it up mentally, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and then today, or if you want to break it up into distinct uh, changes, if you think about either Africa as a whole, Sub-Saharan Africa, w w 
what have been the phases in evolution and power development in Africa? And, and you spoke about it transitioning into a true sort of frontier market where investors have turned their eyes uh, in the recent past. When did that happen and what has driven that? Well, I think the first thing is that you, you know, Africa is not just one flavor. Um, Africa is hugely yes. diverse. And so, you know, it's uh, different, different situations, maybe the same questions, but very different answers um, in each of the different countries. Um, and maybe working backwards, uh, because of, of when you look in the rearview mirror, it's what you've just passed or what's going on at the moment, which kind of, you know, seems most uh, uh, relevant and, and most vivid. Um, I think that we have historically had the kind of um, an image, or industries had an image, but what it should be trying to replicate is kind of exactly what has been in the developed markets. You know, the kind of the notion of you have your power stations, you have your transmission, you have your distribution, um, and you know, that feeds down and creates universal access. Um, and at this point, that model is being really challenged. And it's been challenged, I think, in a very helpful and very good ways because you know, the advent of renewables, uh, different technologies, um, is really changing the way that people think about this. Uh, to give you an example, um, you know, in um, there are a number of, of, of companies across the continent which are you know, putting small 80-watt, meter-by-meter solar panels on people's homes and giving them batteries um, and to, to charge and to run uh, their mobile phones, some lighting, uh, some, small, some small electrical appliances. This is, this is transforming the sort of the last mile. Um, and so the, the, the need, the desire, the economics means that suddenly people who literally been in darkness um, now there's affordable ways for them to gain access to, to power. That's, that, that's hugely transformational. Um, I think in uh, some, um, uh, so that's one big, big trend. The advent and impact of renewables um, is also another clear, uh, clear thing which has been going on. Um, and the, a couple of points on that. I think that the scale and size of renewable projects is, means that they are more digestible. And, and by that, you mean the dollar, the dollar values of CapEx is lower. Exactly. You're not building these $100 million plants that uh, exactly. are just... Okay. And you and you can be building them, you know, in closer to their markets. So you then you know, that allies itself with the mini grids that other people are developing to deal with other you know, demographic parts of, 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 of what's going on in, in different countries. Um, you're seeing, and that then means, of course, we've still got intermittency on, on a lot of those things. So you, you can balance that off with some smaller scale generation. So you're seeing a kind of a, <clears throat> I call it sort of a quilt. Hmm. Um, of different solutions being targeted at different demographics, different countries, uh, you know, a whole variety of factors drive, you know, which pieces of silk each country needs to knit together to create a, a, a total uh, solution. Yeah. And that, I think, is the most interesting and, and challenging thing. And I would say that it's the, uh, in many ways, Africa is, is, is leading in some of this uh, thinking because, 
you know, particularly for countries which don't have the benefit um, of strong legacy uh, grid and distribution infrastructure, and very few do, um, but for countries who don't have that, um, it creates different models to get to uh, to bring power to, to, to individuals. I mean, who knows what one might have done in many other countries around the world if you didn't hadn't started from the infrastructure which people have inherited. Sure. So, so just to recap, I mean, essentially what I just heard you say is in the, Af the Africans are developing a solution that's tailored to the African context, and they're sort of pulling levers uh, depending on their unique situations, which include sort of delivering power at the last mile through very small-scale solar panels or other uh, deployments. You have mini-grids. Uh, smaller size and scale projects located co closer to the customers, uh, but still they face challenges like intermittency and uh, electrification generally. Now, I, the question that I have is, uh, if you're saying they have these different levers, they're building a new solution, a new type of power infrastructure. Um, I, I read a McKinsey report recently that said that um, Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa has, you know, call it 15% of the world's population, but half the world's population that still lives in darkness or that's not electrified. Uh, what, you know, if you say, okay, there's a new grid framework, a new infrastructure that's being overlaid to solve these problems, what has to date impeded a more traditional infrastructure or system uh, from rising in these countries? Is it uh, geopolitical? Is it lack of capital? Is it uh, regulatory? What, what has impeded a deployment of a more, let's call it, conventional uh, energy infrastructure? Um, I'll, I need to unpack that question a little bit. Sure. Um, I think that within the, uh, amongst the large, large, large numbers of people in Africa have very low disposable incomes. Um, and for that demographic, um, the cost of bringing a wire to the home um, is very high for utility because the, the load and the amount of money that people can, sh can afford from their wallet uh, to buy power um, is, is, is limited. And so a, a lot of the challenge there has been you know, this is this is not this is a, a, a not really a particularly economically efficient solution for for those people um the new technology is making that um a you know a, a very different proposition um you know it may be that in you know areas which have got some re reasonable amount of disposable income you know the, the mini grid helps because you know you group people together and you you you're not having to bring the power in from a long distance where the, the generation was for people who are you know a farmer sitting in the middle of, of um you know a, a country um to be able to you know have you know he may not live in the village um so you know, to have a, a, a rooftop solar thing absolutely is so much you know the cost is $150 compared to you know a thousand dollars whatever it may be to bring a wire to him mm -hmm. um, so there's a there's a appropriateness of the technology given the consumption and the and the wallet that people have to to, to spend um, 
in order to get a return because otherwise you know if you subsidize it which is the alternative it puts a huge burden on, on the utilities mm-hmm. um, then if you then start going away from from, from that demographic um, I think that in in many countries um, the utilities um, you know who are I mean if you take um, the major urban uh, major, major cities um, you know there you have got uh, across many many places uh, electricity systems which simply do not function properly and there it is fundamentally for a combination of lack and inve- <clears throat> lack of investment and an inability to um, collect uh, tariffs um, either tariffs have been too low um, or there have been, you know, and or um, high levels of, of technical and non-technical losses. <clears throat> so you, you can't sustain a, a power system unless you have got the, the money coming into it. Um, and these are people who are, you know, are not, um, they can't be subsidized I mean, because they've they got no economic justification to be subsidized. These may be you know, middle class people who, in the context of the country they live in, are, are, are well off. Yep. Um, so you, if you don't set tariffs at the right level, if you start to treat this as a public service in the sense of a, a universal benefit, um, you very soon um, have the most expensive power of all, which is the power you don't have. Let's talk about the demand side of the equation. Uh, you know, you said earlier, people in rural areas, they can't bring a wire to themselves because they have low levels of disposable income. It's hard to justify that cost. Uh, you could argue conversely that because they don't have access to power, they're, they're not able to generate the incomes. Uh, as electrification comes to Africa, uh, how, does, how does that sort of uh, demand change? How is the demand changing today, both in rural and urban areas? And how does electrification change the the nature of demand? Does that result in more more demand for more electricity itself? Um, You you said something there, which is which is there are examples of of exactly what you talked about, where people are where people have gone to develop mini grids, and they have come across uh, situations where they've realised that people actually are economically inactive so to pay for the power they then had to you know do other developmental activities to assist people to um, empower them so they actually do become economically active um, and in that way start to be able to pay to pay their bills Um, but that would be to, to to say that was the um the the whole uh situation it it wouldn't be true Mm -hmm. for our lots of places where simply having uh, light and power to be able to you know to people have, people are already um uh, people are already consuming power you know or, or, or they use kerosene lamps for their lighting uh which is a very expensive form of lighting um you know they are charging their mobile phones but they have to go to a uh, somebody who, who who's got a source of power and is running a generator or a battery and who will uh, give them that um uh, ability to recharge their mobile phone i mean it's there's there are a lot of people who 
their current energy is very expensive. So yes. alternatives um, you know, have a ready pickup on an economic basis. What about in uh, urban areas? Is are rates of electrification, and you can talk, you, you can break it down even further. I just, uh, <laughs> I'm holding it to the level that I understand. But if you look at urban areas in Africa, is you know uh, the intermittency problem? Does it persist? Is that going down? And is demand? I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, we're looking at big data center deployments in in places like uh, South Africa. You know, intermittency is is vital to the, these types of technology uh, in terms of it's a it's a pernicious problem. So, is the demand in urban areas changing as well? Um, I think that uh, I mean maybe just look at some some uh, examples. Um, I think within the if you look at the demand uh, in a in say a city like Lagos, demand for power is is going up. The amount of um, unserved power from the distribution systems is um, enormous. Yes, uh, people will typically be spending um, more have more hours without grid power than they do have it uh, by by a substantial margin. Um, so there is is that know, intermittency a, problem a power production problem, as in there's not enough power being produced, or is it a delivery problem, fundamentally? It, it is almost everything. It's almost <laughs> Interesting. Um, so it's a, a, a problem caused by transmission constraints and inadequate uh, transmission availability. It is a problem caused by poor maintenance of some of the uh, power plants, so a megawatt so the, the capacity isn't there. I mean, the statistics would show you that in Nigeria, um, demand or, or output uh, has very rarely exceeded 4,000 uh, megawatts at any point in time for eight, 10 years or so. Wow. Uh, yet the economy has, has grown in that time. So, I mean, it, it's absolutely the case that uh, demand for power has, has far outreached the um, uh, you know, has, has grown and the capability and investment uh, ability to deliver that power from the grid um, has simply not kept pace in any which way. Mm. Um, so what people are doing is you know, all industry is running on its own generation, um, depending where that is. You know, some of it is it, could be, it would be diesel fired, some of it would be um, you know, gas fired or, or CNG, compressed natural gas. Um, you know, as, as now solar systems are coming on board, um, you know, people are looking particularly in the better um, solar conditions are better. They will be having um, uh, a lot of people are trying to invest in, in, in industrial um, sort of parks and uh, solar on factory roofs and that sort of thing mm. to, to minimize and reduce the amount of diesel which is consumed. Um, and that makes huge economic sense. Now, if we've, we've talked a lot about the market and, and the demand side of power, if we turn it to the investment side, um, from what I understand sitting here in New York and uh, speaking with uh, the investor community, uh, inv infrastructure funds and uh, infrastructure funds facing Africa have, um, like many other alternative asset classes, raised 
you know, tremendous amounts of capital and tremendous amounts of capital remain uh, what we'll call undeployed, uh, uninvested and uh, sitting in sort of dry powder. Um, when I when I speak with my friends who work in infrastructure in in New York, I, I feel a, a tremendous sense of frustration from them in terms of doable projects and projects they can invest in. Uh, is that the sense that you have? And, and if so, what has uh, impaired these funds from being able to deploy Africa, uh, deploy capital into the African continent? Well, it is true that there's been um, a lack of uh, projects um, and a lot more could have been done by the private sector if more um, IPPs um, had been uh, developed. Now I'm going to say something which not all my colleagues would would would, would, would agree with, um, which is that in some ways um, there is a there's a problem with um, a, a view which says we're going to come from Europe or the States or wherever, and what we want is to have um, you know, our projects all tied up with a golden bow of essentially a, a government guarantee sitting behind them. I mean, that's the model at the moment for grid, uh, any on-grid uh, project. And it's the model at the moment for very understandable reasons. I'm not very criticizing the, the, the investors for, for, for asking for it. But in essence, you know, the, the power business, going back to the start of this conversation, the power business can be a much more entrepreneurial activity. Um, in this, and once you have access to customers, um, you know, then, and you can control the customers who pay and those who don't, you can create you know, models um, which are, don't require this government support. Um, of course, you've got to have protection against expropriation and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but you, know, you, if you have, if you have, um, if you're in a situation where you're forced to sell to utilities which are government-owned and they're not really paying their bills, you you end up basically everything ends up being structured as a as a claim against government at the end of the day, mm -hmm. um, and that creates a lot of difficulty for the governments because they don't, you know, it's it, it's it's they don't have the necessary the, the, um, the, the cash available to, to fund that. And mm -hmm. they then have discussions with World Bank and IMF or whoever else it may be, and people recognize that these things are essentially government borrowings in all but name, or they can become borrowings in mm -hmm. all but name. So we have to break the, the mold on that. Um, and I think the way to break the mold is by freeing up the ability to sell to um, customers and the, the basic notion of if, if you can, you know, if you get, you must pay, and if you don't pay, you, you don't get. Um, and the um, uh, so if you open up the market in that way, I think you be, you begin to unlock this 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 problem. The other thing, which I think is really key, um, and if you look at other. Uh, many other emerging markets around the world who've been down this path before is a mobilization of, of, of um, domestic capital. Um, because if foreign investors want dollar or euro returns, um, and that can, and, and that pressure 
uh, creates a sort of a, um, a, a, a real concern that when, if and when a devaluation event comes on, you also get a power price shock, and then the whole thing is, is fragile and not particularly stable. And, and if you look at you know, successful IPP programs around the world, um, it's very noticeable that the ones which have really stood the test of time and not had to have bailouts um, have been the ones which have relied largely on domestic funding. Now, in most um, uh, in most economies in, in Africa, is a real challenge because the pools of capital don't yet exist. But gradually, slowly, they are beginning to they're beginning to come through. You see it um, in South Africa's case, where you know all the PPAs are dominating rand. Um, and that has, you know, sort of demonstrates a, a very, you know, uh, what you would sort of be a, a very successful approach because, you know, you've got um, uh, local currency, you've got local institutions who can fund long-term uh, RAND-denominated debt. Um, so the whole thing works. I mean, that is what everybody needs. That is that type of model everyone needs you working towards. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. And uh, so for you guys, as you sit in this investment banking seat, which is a mix of transaction work, but also advisory, uh, I, I'm guessing it's mostly advisory to the, the project developer side. Um, what sorts of things uh, do you have to bring uh, in your team and with you uh, to do business in Africa that you didn't have to do when you were doing business in Japan or Europe or other geographies? Well, some of the things are the same. You need to have um, that local um, touch and local presence. Um, mm. I mean, and I think in, I mean, and also maybe more so than in more developed markets, but I don't think, I think it's almost a universal truth. FaceTime is terribly important. Um, you know, if you don't have the face time with the, the people who are um, you know, on the other side of the table uh, from you, you, you don't make um, progress. Um, and I think, you know, I know from my, you know, the time I spend in places like Nigeria, you know, you've, got to, you've got to put the, the time in in front of people um, to, um, uh, to, to get things to, to change. So you can't just be kind of doing it from a desk somewhere. Um, so that, that yeah. I think, is maybe the – I don't know. You, you may ask me the question again, but um, it's um, – mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of one of the most important things. No, that's great. So uh, if you had to uh, provide advice, if you had a billboard that – capital markets participants could see with regards to Africa for the next 20 years? What's the advice? What's the uh, action that they should be taking? You've already mentioned one thing to investors to be willing to be more entrepreneurial, but uh, are, there, are there other pieces of uh, FaceTime is another one, but what are the other pieces of uh, action that you think uh, people should take as they think about uh, working and, and doing business uh, in this context? I, I, I think that the, the three um, features um, that we're going to have going forwards um, is you know, one, 
much greater reliance on local sources of capital. Hmm. Um, two is got to be the you know a a realistic approach to cost reflective um, tariffs. I mean, we we have to have a situation where uh, people are you know if you don't pay for your if you don't pay you you don't get. I mean that's it, it's 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 a vital thing. Um, and you know, I think the third thing is going to be the this this um, uh, quilt um, of different solutions to tend to you know different demographic different demographics and uh, local situations, um, which will you know, make up the kind of a, the A to Z of the of the power of the power industry, whether you're in a, a big industrial or whether you're at the other end of the spectrum, you know, somebody um, sitting in a very remote place um, tending a farm. Well, this has been fascinating, Andrew. I want to thank you for your time and uh, really enjoyed the interview today um, and look forward to continuing to work with you on our project. Well, so do, so do I. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye.